There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Father's Day is Sunday, so today we have a very special conversation with George Stevens Jr., founder of the American Film Institute and son of legendary Hollywood director George Stevens. You'll hear us go in-depth about his father's greatest films from Shane to A Place in the Sun. But first, we start with his most epic masterpiece, Giant. I mean, this is 1956. Yeah. This is... Six years before even To Kill a Mockingbird. I mean, this is way ahead of its time in terms of race relations. You had your dad's movie Giant and then John Ford's The Searchers, both dealing with with racial you know prejudice in different ways, Native Americans and, and Latinos in the South. Right. But how's your dad? Like, what's the secret to doing something ahead of its time? You know, it's easy to make a movie in hindsight. You know, kind of ride the wave. But how do you do it? You know, like a Spike Lee do the right thing or your dad with Giant. How do you catch the the cusp before it's happening? Well, I think. First, you have to have a perspective on justice and humanity, uh, which my father had a very solid and progressive perspective. And he'd just come back from the war where he'd been filming combat from D-Day on through the end of the war and into the concentration camp at Dachau. He had his own unit. He, uh, uh, General Eisenhower put him in charge of combat photography for the war in Europe, and they went on D-Day and covered it all the way to the end. Uh, so he had a point of view, and the story of the Mexican-American boy in Giant, played by Sal Minio, mm-hmm. called Angel Obregon, mm-hmm. who was a boy who grew right. up on the great Riata Ranch, and uh, he, Dad changed that story a little bit, because in the story Angel Obregon goes to war and comes back, and his story goes on, but Dad had Angel Obregon come back in a flag-draped coffin, and uh, the funeral of Angel Obregon is one of the most touching moments in the film. Uh, The notion sort of, you know, if, if, if he can fight and die for our country, why can't he just be afforded basic rights? Right, and that's a, you know, a perspective that my father picked up during the war. He remembered it a Life magazine story about coffins coming back from overseas. Uh, So I think that's how somebody taps into that and decides you're making this movie, uh, that that's going to be an important part of it. Yeah, the Sal Mineo character and and serving your country is one aspect. Um, There's also, you know, with the Dennis Hopper character, he takes a Latina wife. Um, and, you know, uh, the mother is a little more accepting of it because she's sort of the progressive um, thinker. Mm-hmm. And um, this is 11 years before Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Your dad's way mm-hmm. ahead of its time on multiple things. Yeah. yeah. He understood the human condition. And, uh, and he saw the drama in that. And it is the story of Rock Hudson 
the king of this ranch down in Texas, uh, who's a good man, but he's kind of set in ways, certain ways, and the story, it's the story really of, of him becoming a bigger person uh, through his marriage to the Eastern girl, Elizabeth Taylor. Yeah, I've always viewed, in a way, it's almost like it's got the size and scope and spectacle of a Gone with the Wind, but almost the answer to it in terms of now finally the social justice is caught up to, you know, the, yeah. what's, what's addressed in that. Yeah, that Rock Hudson growing up, you know, and he has his dreams for his family, and um, he's shocked when his son, played by Dennis Hopper, marries the Latina, played by Elsa Cardenas. Uh, and then he ends up, at the end of the film, he's there with his wife, looking back on his life, and there's a playpen, mm-hmm. and there's a there, his two grandchildren, a yeah. little blonde girl and a little Hispanic yeah. boy. And rem- behind him, there's a white sheep and a, a black sheep. <laughs> Your dad was really genius with some of that symbolism. Yeah. That, that's mise-en-scene, folks. Um, absolutely. And then right before that, remember, there's the, there's the scene in the, in the diner. Yes. Um, talk about how pivotal a scene that is, because... For the whole movie, you might think the title Giant is just because it's a giant spectacle movie or a giant ranch or, you know, James Dean on these giant oil rigs or, you know, but it's in the scene in the diner and then when he's when he's laying there bruised and battered looking at the two, you know, mixed race kids that you're talking about, um, that the title finally comes into being, how you become a giant. That when was a like, scene created for the movie. It wasn't in the book. Uh, or I believe the scene was in the book, but the Rock Hudson character wasn't in the scene. Yeah. And that they they go into this diner, and uh, there's a big guy named Sarge who runs the diner, and there's a four Mexican Americans, elderly couple, and come in and sit down, and Sarge tells them to get out, and Vic says, you know, Sarge, I, I think you ought to let those people stay, and he tells him to mind his own business, and. They, Bick starts his fistfight, yeah. and it's a titanic fistfight, and he gets knocked into the jukebox, and it sets off the music. And Is the it little, Yellow Rose of Texas, little, or it's something like, it's some southern anthem, the, yeah. Yeah, the Yellow Rose of Texas, and <laughs> these two huge men fight, and Bick, man in his approaching 60, ends up on his back, uh, salad all over him, and uh, Sarge throws the sign on him, we reserve the right to refuse service to anyone. Yeah, and, that's, and uh, that we saw that play out throughout the civil rights era. I mean, yeah. it's, if you like Selma, check out Giant. I mean, it's these these movies have been made for a long time. Right. It's such a powerful movie in that regard. Um, and you mentioned, um, you know, we were talking about the playpen, and we started going into yeah. how your dad populated it with, mm-hmm. you know, the, the colored sheep in mm-hmm. the background. Mm-hmm. He used directorial techniques to really work on your subconscious, I think, a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a scene earlier on, I think they're arguing about whether a white doctor can tend to one of the Latina babies. I think that winds up being Salminio. I'm pretty sure the baby yes. grows up. That's yes. Right. Okay. Um, so earlier on when he's, a, when he's first born, they're arguing over this and it's subtle, but I think it works subconsciously. You're, he, he's, it's really brightly lit, but then when he goes for the reverse shot on, on Rock Hudson, it's really, it's really dark and it almost cues us in who we're supposed to sympathize with. I don't know, did you ever pick up on that or is that just... Uh, you know, I don't recall, <laughs> I don't recall that, but, um, could be. Yeah. Yeah. Check it out next time. I, I, yeah. I, I want to give your dad credit for it. <laughs> but another cool thing was, uh, what is it, when Mercedes McCambridge 
who later voiced The Exorcist, right? Mm-hmm. Here in DC. She's riding on her death ride on the, on the horse. Your dad uses that well, right before she's bucked off. We go from this extreme wide shot, and you talk about that in your book, yeah. extreme wide shot to that really close up on the spur. I mean, talk about your dad in, in terms of a, a daring filmmaker in that regard, to just kind of break rules like that. Yeah, I mean, you know, he, he used to say he made his films in the editing room. You know, he'd shoot a lot of film, and then he'd uh, look for the best way to tell the story. And, you know, he, you know, that's, that's instinct, you know, to do something that's going to arrest the audience's attention and have that foreboding that... Uh, all is not well in this horse ride. <laughs> was he, did you view him like that throughout his career? Just to be able to, you know, I'm going to break a rule here every now and then. I mean, it's a traditional storytelling structure most of the time. Or it's not French New Wave or anything, you know, no. but but every now and then there's those little things but like he, that he, spur. He was very imaginative at using the screen, you know, the moving image. And he did it usually... Uh, not to call attention to itself. I mean, the long dissolves in a place in the sun. Uh, we're talking about another movie now, mm-hmm. but uh, he he would use the full force of the medium. Mm-hmm. But he also had an expression. He never wanted the audience to be looking at the picture and be thinking about the cameraman with his hat on backwards, riding the crane, noticing and, the process, noticing yeah. the picture. Yeah. But no, I mean it's. That's an admirable thing to want to remain invisible and to, you're not being flashy. But at the same time, he is, you know, it, it's not a cop out either. He's actually doing stuff subconsciously on you. You're just not always noticing it, which mm-hmm. I think is part of his genius. Right. I think. I mean, there's all, you know, this the he's in the in the conversation of the great directors, right? There's like everyone else. There's a little more people, and then there's the greats. So he's always obviously up here. But among the greats, I've always found him like. I think he's a little underrated. I think he needs even more, even more uh, esteem up among the hitches and the no, boards. I, th- and the... I think that <clears throat> one of the things is Hitchcock, you know, the master of suspense. Mm-hmm. John Ford, he made great westerns. Right. Ford did more than that. Right. Uh, my father just played the full spectrum of comedy, drama, mm-hmm. uh, adventure. I mean, Gunga Din, yeah. the more the merrier. Astaire Rogers. Swing Time, the yeah. best Astaire Roger pick, uh, yeah. film of all. Uh, and so it's he, he never wanted to be pigeonholed. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's easier for the critics if they can pigeonhole right. somebody. Slap a label on you. And wrap it up and tie a ribbon around it. And he uh, He has more dimension than that. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, with a picture like Giant, you have, that's that's like a big, you know, social conscious, uh, you know, Stanley Kramer style, you know, social justice movie, but with like a Gone with the Wind lavish spectacle, but then also James Dean's last movie. Um, but then with A Place in the Sun, you have this wonderful romance, those tight shots kissing and... Um, but it's also like a thriller and a courtroom drama. Yeah. I mean, he could do everything. My favorite shot in A Place in the Sun, when Monty Cliff gets done sleeping with Shelly Winters and he's leaving the place. We, your dad just goes in on that radio, right? Yeah. And it goes from night to day on that radio. And the and the, the chilling sound of the factory whistle going off. Yeah. You know, the, it, it, it affects you, yeah. you know, physically. I mean, it's uh, ominous. 
he found ways to do sights and sounds to convey stuff that you know in a, a modern a movie today a lot of filmmakers probably would just show them you know they're making love right on screen and it'd be this yeah. salacious thing 50 shades of gray or whatever but isn't there also isn't there an art to be able to convey that with a whistle or an alarm clock fading from night to day that's more artful i think and a, and a remarkable scene in the in a place in the sun is when shelley winters goes to see the doctor and you couldn't talk about abortion you couldn't use right. the word and and it says everything you know with this old doctor and you know there's a subtlety that that's the audience do a lot of the work mm-hmm. you know you're you've got a role to play in that scene i think that's a key i think filmmakers need to give the audience more credit like i think yeah. they're up to the challenge more than than you think i mean do you think your dad viewed it as he did i don't he, need to do hand holding you know, they used to be the studio mantra in the old days was um you know the, the audience has the intelligence of 10 year olds or mm-hmm. you know and he I have often said, what, you know, what did you learn working with your father for many years I did? And my answer is respect for the audience, that he respected the audience and gave him credit for being able to be partners in telling of the story. And that's, you know, I've always felt was a strength of mine that I had that belief. Absolutely. And didn't want to talk down to them. It's really, it's really smart um, and a good lesson to pass down. Do you, yeah. where, were, where were you? I mean, we've talked a lot about your dad's career because it's so legendary, but where were you along the way here? I mean, wh- how old are you when, when he's making, let's say, Shane? Are you Brandon <laughs> Zewild? Are you a little, you're older than that? I was older than that. I bet I, the summer before he made Shane was a, 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 my first summer in college, and, and I worked for him, and I had two jobs. One was to break down Theodore Dreiser's American Tragedy, wow. list every scene in part one and part two. This the, became A Place in the Sun, right? Yeah. right? And the other was to read books that came from the studio or screenplays. And and one day I read his book, a lot of junk, you know, and this small book came and I read it. And I went to see my father that night, he was in bed reading. And uh, I said, you know, I, I read this story this afternoon. And I said, I think it's a really good story. Uh, I said, you ought to read it. And he, he said, well, why don't you tell me the story? So I was kind of pacing around his bed trying to tell him the story of Shane. Oh, wow. And um, the next summer I worked with him on it. And then that's me there in that top of those two photographs yeah. with Rock Hudson wow. on Giant. I was in the Air Force when Giant was made, wow. um, but I visited it quite a bit. What was it like to, I mean, where'd you read the, the Shane or the, no, the it book? It was a book. But do you remember where you picked it up? Like, how did you no, stumble it? It came from the studio okay, with a bunch it. of stuff. I got you. Yeah. So was it, what's it like to be pacing around that bedroom? <laughs> He's in bed right now, and you're yeah. walking around, yeah. and you're reciting the yeah. story of Shane. That's just um, that's unreal. Yeah, you know, and I'm sure, you know, he was a great man and a great father. But, you know, he was, he was going to read the book, but I think he thought it was probably good batting practice nice. to let me think. Yeah. It put you in the position of... Mm-hmm telling a story right and 
Did you have Alan Ladd in your mind when you were... <laughs> no, no. Uh, in fact, there's a... In Dad's copy of the book, I gave all his papers to the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, where I'm giving my papers. Mm-hmm. And on the, the scene where Jack Schaefer writes about the chopping the stump... Oh, yeah. Outside, and Dad write, wrote in this m- margin, Monty will have to muscle up for this scene. Monty, so he thought it would be Monty Clift. Yeah. Wow. That was the first idea. Well, yeah, I mean, you just got off a movie with him, I guess. So. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I know I know you weren't the Wilds age, but... Um, I've always, I've always just in terms of the career, I've always pictured you like that, watching your dad, you know, like your dad's Shane, watching your hero, and then learning from it. And then, right. but, uh, but yeah, let me let's go a little bit more into 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 your career too, because you know your dad has left a huge legacy, obviously. But I mean, just like I was telling you with your two books here, the conversations with the great movie makers <laughs> of Hollywood's golden age. I mean, you did these in conjunction with the American Film Institute, right? Well, you know, one of my career, I, I came here. Having worked in Hollywood, mm-hmm. finished work my father last on the Diary of Anne Frank, mm-hmm. and we we're about to start the greatest story ever told. And then Edward R. Murrow asked me to come and work with him at the USIA, United States Information Agency, under Kennedy, and I ran the motion picture program there. And during that time, the National Endowment for the Arts was created, and they didn't know what to do about film, mm-hmm. and my advice was asked, and I suggested the Film Institute, and so then I became the founder of the Film Institute. It's just did that for uh, the fact that you founded that is just yeah. mind blowing. I mean, that's the AFI. I think has done more. This is you know biased opinion, but I think done more to to just generate you know film conversation and inspire young people to get into it with all the best lists and, and you know the countdowns they do and the afi silver and everything i think they've just it's just a priceless institution yeah. and and i just want to say thank you for doing it you're welcome <laughs> how did that idea how that come about do you remember the first mentioning yeah of well i had having come to washington realized that there was a little very little awareness about the value and potential of film very the film wasn't the center of the conversation the way it is now and nobody knew the names of any directors you know uh, and it was sort of fashionable to say oh I, I never go to the movies you know sort right. of a east coast thing there right um, and as the idea for the endowment developed uh, you know, I had been at the USIA. I started an intern program and a young filmmakers program to bring mm-hmm. younger filmmakers into USIA. So I was on that track. Right. That you know, you know, and that the European countries had great film schools and we didn't, and we didn't preserve our films and they were mm-hmm. disappearing and deteriorating, rotting away. Yeah. So you know the. Film Institute was kind of organic to me when the opportunity presented itself. Yeah. Are you amazed to see how, how it's continued to flourish? Yeah, I'm, I'm pleased that, that uh, uh, you know, I, I, figured, I, I spent 12 years on it, which was longer than I intended, and then stayed on the board. 
till today. Yeah. Um, but I couldn't devote my life to it. I had other stuff yeah, to yeah. do. Uh, so, you know, there's some things that we started a wonderful magazine called American Film, and mm-hmm. that kind of collapsed, which that was a shame. And one of my ideas was that there would be a museum on the mall dedicated to film. Yeah, so right. some of the dreams I had never got fulfilled. But <laughs> Is it possible that could ever happen? Or Well, I think they're now doing it in Hollywood. I think, oh, okay. right. you know, uh, it would take a lot of engineering yeah, yeah. and political yeah, yeah. effort. Just more on the AFI. I mean, what, I mentioned the 100 Years series. I'm a huge fan of those. I mean, right. it gives you a great primer. And yeah. not, not only just, you know, if you want, you can print off the list and go down with a highlighter, um, like <laughs> I did. <laughs> but the television specials, you, you would you would get all of these filmmakers around, and you got to see, you know, why Spielberg loved The Searchers, why Scorsese loved, you know, whatever, the Citizen Kane, look, looking at it through the cinematic eye. And, you know, those series, I, I mean, this is just personal opinion, but like, I, I feel like those, in, in, you know, really can serve as a great primer for new generations to come. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, it's important, I mean, the, to respect the history of this medium, which is largely a product of America in the 20th century, mm-hmm. and to respect that and to be knowledgeable about it is important. And view it as an art form. I mean, it's art and entertainment. It's that whole the spectrum, yeah. which I think your dad nailed too. Mr. Stevens Jr. here has had done a series of Q and A's. He's compiled with every major filmmaker you can imagine, from Billy Wilder to Alfred Hitchcock to John Ford, and even newer ones. I think the second book has like Darren Aronofsky and some newer guys too. Yes. Um, if I shoot out a, a, a name, could you just tell me a thought? Like you know, Capra. He's a remarkable fellow. You know, he was born in Italy, and came to the United States and ended up making the the most loved films of the 30s and early 40s. Uh, and he was about five foot seven <laughs> and a feisty guy. Yeah. And uh, Also shot like your father, right? Well, shot he, war. He, he headed up in Hollywood, the, the Why We Fight series. Mm-hmm. And Dad told me when Capra came to the Pentagon one time, as I said, he was not, not a big man. He was a lieutenant colonel. And he came to talk to them about this m- movie program. And they walked in, and there were 10 generals. And they had all their, <laughs> and admirals. And they had all their uniforms on and all the big conference table. Yeah. And he shook hands with all of them. And they were all very polite. And he's yeah. in his colonel's uniform, yeah. lieutenant colonel. And uh, finally, it quieted down. He said, Well, fellas, he says, are we going to talk about motion pictures? And they said, yes. He says, then I'll sit at the head of the table. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so that's very Capra. I love that story. All right. All right. And uh, God, Alfred Hitchcock. He was so brilliant at being specific about how movies are made. Yeah. And he was contrary. And he would talk about that it's all preparation yeah. and he said uh, that when I walk on the set to start shooting a movie I've made the movie in my head he's already seen it he said yes and uh, uh, and and I'm really kind of bored to have to shoot it yeah and he said and, well then why don't you let somebody else shoot it 
and he said, I don't want them to screw it up. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. So that's, that encapsulates him. Yeah. Billy Wilder. Well, Billy Wilder, again, what's so remarkable about that era of motion pictures that some of the com- funniest films, some like it hot, uh, mm-hmm. to name one, yeah. uh, made by this fellow who was born in Vienna and spoke with an Austrian accent till yeah. the day he died, but how the immigrant enriched this unique mm-hmm. American yeah. kind of form of motion picture comedy. Yeah. And Billy Wilder and before him Ernst Lubitsch. Yeah, they worked um, together. And others. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you, you, we think it's the American, it is the American Film Institute, but it's not all American natives. I mean, it's it's right. a lot of immigrant direct, I mean, even Hitchcock, we just mentioned, is from yeah. England and yeah, all over the place. Um, William Wyler. William was, Wyler. Yeah. What, what stood out with you from your chat with William Wyler? First thing well, that came Well, we were mind. good friends, uh, and he had gone also into the army like my father mm-hmm. and he flew missions in B-25s over Germany making a film called The Memphis Bell. Mm-hmm. He lost his hearing in one of those uh, in an mm-hmm. attack on his the plane uh-huh. he was flying in. Willie was a, uh, again not a big man but you know with an accent yeah. uh, and a great colleague of my father's. In fact, Frank Capra and William Wyler and my father started a company together. Mm-hmm. They were all lieutenant colonels mm-hmm. after the war. And that, you know, Wyler, born in Toulouse, France, mm-hmm. and uh, comes to America and has a great career, mm-hmm. gives it up to join the army, to go back to Europe mm-hmm. and risk his life. You know, uh, these were great men. Yeah, you feel like the the same isn't asked of of our of celebrities today. No, it's a small and smaller percentage that goes and fights such wars. Yeah, yeah. but uh, more concerned with uh, uh, organic food. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Um, I don't know. Any, any. I'm trying to think who all else is. In. I mean, we don't want to go through all of them, but uh, John Ford. John Ford was Sean Aloysius Ofini was his name. <laughs> um, and I think he was born in Maine of Irish parents. And he was older than these ones mm-hmm. that we talked right. about a little bit. But, but, but colleagues also fought in World War II. Uh, and uh, he just had this great Irish-American sensibility that applied to Westerns or comedies. Uh, and there was just tremendous heart in his work, mm-hmm. and he loved, you know, American history and had a way yeah. of presenting it. And we talked a lot of the people we've talked about um, were kind of the, of the golden age, so yeah. to speak, of your dad's generation of filmmakers. Yes. Um, as that torch got carried into, you know, sort of the more maverick, you know, Easy Riders to Raging Bulls phase, or I, I put it at sixty-seven, probably right, mm-hmm. Bonnie and Clyde on maybe. Um, it was this new flowering of what film could do. Um, what, what was your take on that whole era? I mean, um, different from your father's generation, but great filmmaking in, in a whole new way. It was almost mm-hmm. the French coming back and mm-hmm. inspiring them. Yeah, that was, a, you know, The Godfather. There's some yeah. wonderful films in that period that, you know, I really 
I think, judge filmmakers by their body of work. You're the auteur. Huh? Well, I, maybe uh, William Wyler said it when we gave him the Life Achievement Award in his acceptance speech. He said, I'm not sure whether I believe in the auteur theory, he says, but I know I'm the only director in Hollywood who can pronounce it correctly. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so these these were men of of humor, absolutely, and and most of them also liked uh, a a good drink or a few drinks. Yeah. and there was a it was a of the hard living bunch in those days. Yeah. Well, I mean, you'd, you'd seen a lot and been through a lot. Let's yeah. let's say that. Um, what what about the state of cinema today? Um, are you? I mean, technology has changed so much in terms of distribution, you know, yeah. streaming online. Yeah. Um, you know, cameras are becoming way more portable now. You know, it's now, God, someone can pull off something like Birdman and do a single take in the whole, the illusion of it, at least the whole movie. I mean, it's, there's some cool new um, avenues out there. But what, yeah, what's the, what's your take on it? I mean, we're, a lot of people are also hesitant on, you know, for every Birdman, there's like nine tentpole superhero movies too, which they obviously have a place. Um, but you know, where where do you think we stand now? Do we need to recalibrate it all, or you think we're we're healthy, or where where do you think we are now? It's very hard to guide. You know, I mean, with the American Film Institute, mm -hmm. you know, we had this idea that uh, uh, you know some training and you know a serious place where people could learn filmmaking from the masters, mm -hmm. which was the Center for Advanced Film Studies that we set up in Los Angeles, where David Lynch and Terrence Malick and mm -hmm. a lot of other wonderful filmmakers have come out of. But I, I think it's hard to say, oh, well, we ought to insist on more of this or right. insist on more of that, because it is a this free enterprise sure. thing. And what interests me right now is the really high quality of work being done for television in the mm -hmm. broadest sense. Yeah. Uh, true detective. Amazing show, be right? Beautiful filmmaking. Yeah. And those eight episodes can go up against a, a, a cinema, a movie. Uh, absolutely. And, uh, and that's where people who have some kind of more serious of pur seriousness mm -hmm. of purpose might end up making their films and doing it very well. Right. And you no notice more and more good directors mm -hmm. doing work there, Absolutely. whether it's uh, Netflix or HBO yeah. or Showtime, AMC, uh, yeah. because uh, they can tell the stories they want to tell. Yeah. And the big investment in the movie business these days, even when the era where I was, uh, when, my, when my father, Fred Zinneman, David Lean, William Wyler, and John Ford, were, they were making the big pictures yeah. every year. Yeah. I mean, the, the cinemascopes and the VistaVisions well, and the... Well, and the stories. Yeah. Lawrence of Arabia, yeah. Man for All Seasons, Giant, yeah. uh, The, the Searchers. Uh, now, the big investment is going to the tent poles. Mm -hmm. And that's not where the great filmmakers are working. Right. You know? And so the films that end up getting award consideration right. are usually films made for 
much less money. Right. You know, and you know, I th I thought it was a good thing when the the lion's share of the resources would go to a David Lean right. to make a Chivago or a Lawrence or a River Kwai, yeah. you know, or to my father to make Giant or yeah. you know, a Place in the Sun or Shane. How did that splintering happen? I mean, it, it, like you said, that David Lean or your father would get, you know, the yeah. big budget. You know, what 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 would be going now to you know the tentpole movie would be going to those you know what were considered the art, great artful filmmakers of that time. How did that splintering happen? I mean, kids aren't going to see the great art movies anymore. Back in the day, it was all one. Yeah. So how did that splintering happen? Was it the, you know, the the sequel era of the '80s? Was it the I don't know. What do we attribute that to? Is it Jaws Gone Mad? Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, Jaws is a great film, but yeah. Yeah, but, I mean, but it, exactly. That, it, but I guess Star Wars was the one that yeah. set it off. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, these studios, international corporations, mm -hmm. they have found that the way to make a lot of money yeah. is to make these so called tentpole movies and hope that they can build a theme park. And merchandise right. a lot of goods with it, right. um, and uh, with the built-in brand probably of something that already right. exists before the movie, like a comic and, book. And, and those are for the most part films that don't attract the best filmmakers right. because they might have, you know, a, a, you know, want to make a, a, you know something a little truer to their own. Mm -hmm. Identity, personal expression, mm -hmm. personal film. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Is that genie? I mean, in a way, I mean, I feel like that genie is kind of out of the bottle. It's hard to, you know, the it's almost severed. Where you know the the movies that are are made for the summer are making gobs of money. They're, they're always the top grocers, but they're hardly ever around come award season. It used yeah. to be Sound of Music was the best picture and the highest grossing movie of the year. I mean, right. is that genie out of the bottle? Is that split going to go on and on? And we just have to kind of. You know, well, adapt. you never—you never know. Yeah. I guess I—that what led me to talk about the good work being done in television mm -hmm. or right. on the home screen, yeah. if you will. And uh, you know, nothing is forever. Yeah. You know, we'll see. Yeah. I don't. You and I don't have the answer. <laughs> I wish we could, but yeah, I mean, television. I think is yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. True Detective. I Any? Know. Are you a binger? Are I you a binge watcher? I, I have done a little <laughs> of it, you know. And we have big screens at home. Yeah. Uh, I was watching The Masters on Sunday. Nice. And you know, the picture is just so. And I was thinking, my father yeah. used to love golf. Yeah. Um, and you know, it was black and white or even color yeah but this high definition yeah. you know you can have See the tea flying off the tea box <laughs> absolutely you can have a great experience yeah. at home watching a movie yeah uh that's you know maybe not quite what the theater is but it's comparable right. whereas before uh you know i'm still a big fan of the experience in a theater it's a communal experience everyone in the, yeah. in the dark at once Nothing you like can't it. match it right but uh what's your take on film versus digital i mean you mentioned the hd at the masters i mean these yeah. cameras can catch well, a lot yeah and good filmmakers are able to offset that sort of bright mm -hmm. digital right quality right um 
that I, I hate to see film go away. Yeah. Well, you started the American Film Institute. Right. It wouldn't be the same. Right. Exactly. <laughs> well, I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, yeah. And I think your dad will continue to look even more in a favorable light <laughs> when, you know, when the ahead of his time filmmaker even becomes more and more ahead of his time as more time passes. And you know, the, the one film of his that uh, uh, was not a great success financially mm -hmm. and one of the most ambitious films he made was the greatest story ever told, mm -hmm. The Life of Jesus, Yeah, which I think over time is going to become a hugely respected film. Right. It was very respected when it came out. But it's kind but, of gotten lost in the shuffle. Well, and there were some critics who really took after it. But it, it, it's a, real, a serious yeah. telling with, of uh, this story that has fascinated mankind yeah. for generations, the story of Jesus. Yeah. And uh, he made it for, so that it could be accepted by the believer but also could be respected and be mm -hmm. engaging to the non-believer. Mm -hmm. uh, so you think it's a bit of a hidden gem now? I do. Yeah, I do. It's one of the most beautiful films ever made. Yeah, I've seen it. I think I've seen it once, but I, mean, I want to go take a look at it again. Now. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? Okay. So why? I mean, why do you think? Why do you think that is? It's what's going on in that movie that stands out to you? That's a very important story. Yeah. And it is told with such intelligence and yeah. such drama. And such cinematic yeah. grandeur, um, both in the in the big sense and in the small sense. And you watch how you know you enjoy seeing how scenes are staged yeah. and how story is told. You know this is uh, it's a sleeper. <laughs> it's the sleeper hit. So yeah, we, you, everyone's seen Ben Hur, but uh, go back maybe check out the hidden yeah. sleeper. And I'm, I was thinking about it when on Easter, uh, ABC ran the Ten Commandments, yeah. which they ran Annual, every Easter, yeah. which is really kind of a bogus movie, if I <laughs> dare say. You know, right. it's... it's uh, right. uh, With all due respect, Mr. DeMille. Yes. <laughs> but, so you think the greatest story ever told could be... Um, you want to see, you would like to see it become that annual, uh, yeah, if it could. I, I mean, I think, yeah. because it, it, it's, it's, it's informative and true, mm -hmm. and you know, real effort to mm -hmm. capture the mm -hmm. uh, what was so remarkable about this life, right? And that people are still talking and, about and it. Played yeah. by a, an extraordinary actor named Max von Sydow, mm -hmm. who from all the Ingmar Bergman from, movies, from the Ingmar Bergman films. But he was somebody you really could believe that this right. may be Jesus, yeah. as opposed to. Um, yeah. You know the actors yeah. who were movie stars who right. played it. Yeah, when when you've set set across from death and played chess against him in an Igmar Bergman movie, you're allowed to be Jesus. I yeah. think I think that earns your cred. Oh, that's right. <laughs> well, thanks so much. Okay, wonderful. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time.
I wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.